I wanted to excel my game and isolate my game from everybody else. That I was more than just, you know, a few dimensional. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? It is important for a superstar. The team reflects their personality. He's an intimidating personality. Michael Jordan punched Steve Kerr in the face during a practice. <laughs> it's going to be MJ. He's got that hand. He had these incredible hands. Those hands were, you know, billion-dollar hands. Why can't I be the MVP of the league? Why can't I do that? From the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network, this is an Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball. Today, the author of maybe the most talked about basketball book of all time, Sam Smith, sits down with me to talk about his unusual path from the White House to the inner sanctum of the greatest basketball player in the history of the game. In case you don't know, Sam Smith is the award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller, The Jordan Rules, and numerous other basketball books such as Hard Labour, I'll Show You, The Derrick Rose Story, and one of my favourites, The Second Coming, The Strange Odyssey of Michael Jordan from Courtside to Home Plate and Back Again. And for years this man worked for the Chicago Tribune, but today he actually works for the Bulls themselves, so if you want to read more of his stuff, head over to Bulls.com. He received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pro Basketball Writers Association and the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Nobody has an insight into the game at the highest level, quite like Sam Smith. No one has seen a backlash to their work, quite like Sam Smith. And no one was there for MJ's first and last three games, except for maybe George Kohler, his limo driver. To hear the full chat with no ads and all our episodes and our entire archive, head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and start supporting the show so that we can continue to make it. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. Help them continue to improve the mental health skills of young Irish people back home by supporting them at Jigsaw.ie forward slash now. Sam Smith, it's brilliant to have you on the Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball. I'm going to start somewhere pretty unusual. There's a little fact I found out about you that I'm not sure too many people know. Uh, you're known for your work in basketball, your incredible books, and most significantly and most recently, The Jordan Rules has come up again. But this little tidbit came to my attention when preparing for this, and that was that it was your dream to play baseball and that at 16 years old, correct me if I'm wrong, you tried out for the Yankees. (laughs) Well, yeah, those things are uh, probably... uh forgotten myself but uh yeah i i uh i think i was yeah about 16 or 17 i uh had a tryout in yankee stadium i was you know it was one of those things when you when yeah especially in the united states in that era growing up uh, baseball was a dominant sport i grew up in new york city where we had three baseball teams the yankees the dodgers and the giants i lived in brooklyn grew up mm. in brooklyn you know and, and uh Probably forecasting my future, I was always the uh, the guy on the other side saying, "Well, what about the Yankees or the Giants?" Always <laughs> creating an argument with the with the Dodger fans. Um, but I, I was not a pro level player. But I, as a kid, I was I was good. I was very, mm. I was pretty. I was good. And um, so in the Sandlot, I played in the Sandlots and school teams and things like that. And I scouted. See, I weighed about 115 pounds, and I was a pitcher. Okay. And he said, "Well, if you if you could put on, you know, 35 or 40 pounds, I think you would have a chance." And so they invited me to a tryout at the Yankee Stadium, which was a great thrill. It was mm-hmm. empty. It was just about it was uh, about two teams of kids, about 20, 20 or 20 or 25 local in New York City kids had a kind of a joint and we played a little game and had a workout and it was the old Yankee stadium before they redid it in the early sixties. And then it was a big cavernous 70,000 empty seats. So it was great fun, great, exciting. And, uh, I didn't get selected. Then I went on and played college ball, but what, what always have, you always have your moments. Mm. 
And I remember I was, was a sophomore. I was the number one pitcher on a bad college team, uh, Division Two, what we call it. It was a little le- one lower down, less than the top level. Mm. And uh, so when I was a junior, a kid came out for the team, and he was throwing the 95-mile-an-hour breaking balls. And I realized then that my career was in other than sports. So at, at about 19, I got my wake-up call that it was time to start looking for something else. And actually, that was, that was right about the time I started to uh, find journalism. But I knew at that point, having seen what a real athlete looks like, mm. That I wasn't one. But there was obviously something, Sam, that you were really, really drawn to about the game. And I think that uh, about sports specifically, right, that even though you took this detour into politics to get there, I think it's something that a lot of Irish lads and girls will relate to, that your parents were the ones that were kind of like, well, that's not a really serious thing to do we prefer you were attempting to make them proud in essence by taking a more inverted commas serious journalistic route well yeah i mean it's a it's a, it's a good in, insight in a way i'm, I'm some, some most people are not great with insights about themselves part of it is growing up in a in a, such a large place mm. it's hard to have any sort of identity new york city you know largest city in the united states um, I think eight or nine million people when I was growing up. Uh, Brooklyn, the na- borough where I was, two million, I think. Mm. And so it's it's very difficult, and that's why in big cities I always found there's a lot of yelling because people <laughs> people are trying to get noticed. Yeah. It's very hard to get noticed in big places, and you know everybody everybody thinks they're special, and and they are. Everybody has a story in some way. And, but it's hard to tell it. So you're always, in a lot of respects, striving to get noticed, striving for something special, striving to be somebody, in effect. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, when you're, when I, sports, I was, my, my, my parents were, my mother, immigrants, uh, came from Russia. Okay. And so I was the first generation in the United States in my family, and they, they were having come to the United States to, before the Depression and growing up during the Depression were always work-oriented. And, and mm. one thing I did remember is because they were always working, always complaining about work, you know, blue collar. And mm. my mother's secretarial, my father was a clerk in the post office. And very, I, I, I always thought to myself that I wanted to find something that I had a passion for, that I looked forward to doing. I didn't want to grow up working and not not loving the work, not looking forward to the work. That even I didn't I, I didn't fully articulate it to myself as a kid, but I, I understood that sort of intimately that I needed to find something. And if I did find something like that, then it would be special. And then, then um, I had a chance to succeed at it because I would be motivated and driven and excited about it. And I knew that it's hard to get excited about something you don't love doing. And initially, my love was in sports, but I, in getting into journalism at the time, it was uh, Watergate and politics and government was the main story in the United States with the scandal of the president of Richard Nixon administration. So it drove me toward uh, government and politics. But uh, I always had that sports in my background, having grown up and having had a love and appreciation in, in New York. And probably that that way, uh, where you are, the tabloid newspapers were mm-hmm. very dominant. And sports in the way they worked in the United States, and the Daily News and the Mirror in New York, uh, the sports were in the back, and I always would read the newspaper from the back to the front. And my mother would always say, why don't you ever look at the front first? And I would say, well, I'm not interested in that as much as I'm interested in the back. Yeah. So so I knew that So sports was uh, deeply rooted in, 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 in my past, and eventually I was fortunate enough and lucky enough to wind my way back to it. 
So one of the key moments has to be meeting Phil Jackson during his CBA days at the Albany Patroons. Now, again, people won't, I think a lot of people don't realise this because, you know, the interpretation and essentially the way it was sold to us as basketball fans was that this mean guy, Sam Smith, has written this awful book about these people that he has no connection to, when in fact you and Phil Jackson go way, way back to this point. And this friendship has endured through all of this. Maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about how you first came into contact with the Zen Master. Yeah, it's been it's been a you know a great joy in my life. I I know still communicate with Phil regularly and emailed with him just last week about some things. And so, I in growing up in New York, Phil played with the Knicks, mm. so I knew of him. I remember I was a fan. Used to go to Madison Square Garden regularly when we were kids in high school in New York. They had what they called a GO General Organization card, and you could go to a Knicks game for seventy-five cents. Oh wow! And sit in in the old garden, uh, which was up on Eighth Avenue and Forty Ninth Street before they moved to the where that Penn Station area is now, and it was in the sixties, seventies. You could sit in the balcony and it had an overhang. You were right over the court. It was a great, very intimate arena, very much like this old Chicago stadium. Uh, so I remembered Phil as a player and then um, uh, got into the Chicago. Uh, was in, uh, worked in Washington, D.C., came to Chicago in 1979. I was still writing national government politics. I, I, I helped cover the 1980 presidential campaign. And then I took a... Uh, sort of a sabbatical they had where you would do, you could work for the Sunday magazine. We had a great lively Sunday magazine for the Chicago Tribune. Most of those are out of existence now, except the New York Times. And you could just write features of your interest. And um, I was always interested in the minor, you know, in the players and the people who are struggling. Sort of, and Chicago's nature is that sort of working class intimate examinations of people who are working, not just the famous and the rich. And um, I was always intrigued by minor league sports and those who were maybe partially because that was my level. I could never rise above that anyway myself. But I was always interested in the guys who were trying, who often didn't make it. And, you know, we have this notion of those who succeed are the ones who work the hardest, mm. which is not necessarily the case. The, the, the ones who succeed have the most talent usually. And ones who in the minor leagues or in lesser places work just as hard or harder. Mm. They just don't have the always the abilities. And so and it's much easier for people to relate to those people, obviously, because they're much closer in right. ability to themselves. And I always felt like that. I could relate to them as well. So I, uh, there was a uh, CBA, was the Continental Basketball Association, sort of the equivalent of what now is the G League. But it was a very rich minor league in, in basketball for many years. Eastern League in the 60s actually was a very high-level league because there was so much discriminate, racial discrimination in the NBA hmm. that they would limit the number of black players per team. So there was uh, Eastern League back then, which sort of morphed, evolved into the CBA and Phil would want to become a coach. And it, it's often overlooked about Phil with the Zen and the mysticism and the Native American symbols and all. Is it, basically a basketball lifer. You know, he's mm. a basketball guy at heart. And essentially, he was in basketball 50 years. And you can't be in 50, you can't be a basketball guy for a half century or something and just do it by magic beads. Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got to be a guy who. Uh, knows the plays, does the plays, uh, is just as wonky as anybody else. And Phil, and Phil is and was, uh, but wanted to get in, but had this reputation as kind of a flake, a hippie, had written a book in the mid-70s in New York, you know, a kind of anti-establishment guy, mm. and wrote this book called Maverick and uh, talked about drug use and things like that. But just, you know, you know that was an ear in the NBA, in, in, in the United States, too. Mm. And then Phil was just sort of a part of that, somebody who's exper- you know, experimenting in life because of the way he grew up. Family, parents, both Pentecostal ministers, and uh, remote in, um, in Montana, didn't have a television, didn't have any electronics, grew up like, well, you know, like an Amish family we'd consider. 
Yeah. And but you know, well read, very interesting. And so I, uh, we had a CBA team in the, the suburbs of Chicago, actually Northwest Indiana, Gary. And I, I thought I would do a story on them and travel with them. And it turns out they were traveling to uh, play the Albany Patroons in uh, in Albany. So I rode out with them and then and spend, then spend end up spending the weekend, you know, with that, those games and with Phil. You know, because they were playing them, and I known him, I'd known of him, so they did that story, and and because of the relationship I created there, I kind of started to keep in touch with him. Uh, when I was doing NBA history stories or NBA, I would call him as a as a reference, somebody, you know, the yeah. background, talk about basketball, and and then he sort of, you know, because I was connected with the NBA, covering the Bulls and covering the NBA, he would call me about. Um, possibilities in the league jobs and things because he was kind of overlooked and uh, it was really about to quit basketball for good no and uh he invested with some friends and some businesses in montana you know he had kind of given up Uh, he coached a couple of years in puerto rico in summer leagues and then uh, to, to his credit jerry Krause came back to him and um you, you know, helped to uh, basically inserted him onto Doug Collins' staff. And if not for that, Phil, Phil likely would have been out of basketball, would have never had a basketball career. And that was part of why, unfairly, inappropriately, I will say, Jerry Krause got angry with Phil later on in, in uh, yeah. the Bulls years that was talked about with the last dance toward the end, that he felt Phil still owed him. Yeah, he saved 19, him. You know, yeah. and, and yes, he did save him, but you know, Phil paid paid dividends. You know, Phil was hired mm-hmm. to do a job and did a great job. So yeah, at a certain time, at a certain point, he's paid was, him back. Yeah, he definitely paid him back. But, you know, that was a flaw of Krause's personality. But yeah, so it was, and then and then of course, having uh, covering the Bulls, Phil becomes head coach. Actually, I uh, I was very close to him on, on, during the, when he was on the assistant staff because he didn't really know anyone in Chicago, mm. and so we spent a lot of time together, and just talking. And then he became coach, and just just because he was such an interesting person. I mean, one of my favorite things from the Jordan roles is basically Phil predicting the nine eleven disaster ten years before it. Yeah, uh, when when we were when the United States was uh, pulling out of Iraq, the first uh, first Gulf War, and he was talking about about it with the players, and there was a lot of sentiment at that time in the United States. Well, let's go in and let's get Hussein and you know George Bush, the first George Bush president, mm-hmm. was appropriately you know, was criticized a lot about it, but appropriately pulled back the troops, you know, just did the mission and got out, which mistakenly his son, you know, made a disaster of. But I remember Phil talking to the team about it. and I wasn't in the meeting, but relating later between the players and Phil, you know, having heard about it and asking about it, you know, the players were all very young and aggressive and yeah, let's get in and let's kick his butt and all that sort of stuff. And Phil sort of schooling him about you know, well, what happens, you know, about their, uh, the knock-on their offspring and the sons and what's the next generation going to think and, and how's their view going to be toward the United States and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was amazing, amazing. you know, prescient, uh, prescient uh, view of things that, that was so lost, not only on Americans, but American policymakers and decision makers. And, you know, fortunately for the Bulls, Phil stayed in coaching. Unfortunately for our government, Phil didn't get involved in the government and help save us from some of the disasters that we stepped into in later years. I always felt when Bill Bradley was running, tried to run for president in 2000, Phil would have been a great secretary of state. Well, let me ask you this, because, you know, a few things that you referenced there uh, lean into this different culture and atmosphere the fact that you were able to kind of sidle up to the side of phil jackson and say hey i you know i used to watch you in the old madison square garden or strike up this friendship is a world away from the (coughs) fabergé eggs transported on cushions around these uh, private jets to stadiums to perform like rock stars each night that the NBA has become today. And I guess it leads into that aspect of 
the last dance that a lot of people kind of raised eyebrows at. Certainly anybody that read your book raised eyebrows about the idea that Horace was the leak. Horace, the idea of pinning it on him in this series is nuts to anybody that's read your book who knows that everybody in your book had no problem with going on the record and saying, I said these things and that there wasn't one leak. It was you deeply embedded in the team, just in the way Halberstam had been with the Portland Trailblazers, the book that inspired your own book, correct? Yes, and I appreciate your mentioning that. It's, it's, you know, it's come up over the years and, and I, don't, I don't mind. I felt badly for Horace on some respects because it, was, it wasn't true and put him on the defensive. Obviously, part of that was, you know, Michael doing it and like Horace and, mm. you know, Michael, we, we showed his ill side. But, but yeah, and, and it, it, I never understood why it wasn't so obvious. First of all, then and partially why I, one of the things I was proud of with the book is it wasn't anonymous sources. It wasn't league sources. It was mm-hmm. people speaking on the record yeah. all the time about things. And the way I, I was able to do that, and when I was writing and reporting it during that season, because I'm also covering the team, I had asked players. I said, well, could I use that? And there were several occasions where they said, because they knew I was working on a book too. They said, well, you can't put it in a newspaper because then I got to answer it tomorrow. But if you're going to, you could put it in a book if you want. Right. Kind of thing. It's like, yeah, you can make this a historical record. You just can't, this can't be just my daily. Mm. And because they understood in a historical record, because players are a lot sharper than they get credit for often. And they understood as a historical record, there would be commentary from multiple people. It wouldn't be just them because they knew, they knew what I was doing. They knew me uh, and they knew that I would be fair and not, you know, hurt their careers or embarrass anybody, which, which it didn't. It was just a, it was a story sort of behind the scenes of human interaction. And, you know, the advantage I had, like you say about, you know, protected species, uh, yes, there is very much notion about that, about sports figures now. But the thing to always remember is they're people. Mm. And they're people, they're people like you and like me just with one special skill. Doesn't mean they have other special skills, but they have this one special ability to entertain, be it, you know, be it a dancer, be it a singer, an actor, somebody that you want to marvel at their performance. And you could marvel at their performance, but as long as you deal with them as you know, norm, regular people. Otherwise, that's the how they're most comfortable. That's who they are, really. Yeah. And so it's not difficult to do. And and it helped me being in Washington D.C. before that because I I was covering Congress. I, I covered the White House some, and so I met what we would consider famous and powerful people. And then I would speak with them, and I would realize, well, they're not any smarter than I am. <laughs> they don't know more than I do. Now, of course, we've now in the United States going to the lowest common denominator, <laughs> yeah. where the president yeah. is the stupidest person in the country. But that's all. That's a different that's another story. Da- story. So, so, but and yes, and that's when that era it was different because we traveled together. You say, well, I had this unique access, which I did because there was no charter aircraft, there was no special hotels and suites. I mean. It wasn't like the 60s and 70s where they had literally had roommates, players, you know, you know, Phil was roommates with, say, Bill Bradley on the road. You know, mm. the, the players didn't have separate roads, separate rooms. OK, they had separate rooms now, but we're staying in, you know, Sheridan's and a Marriott was an upgrade. Uh, you know, we would travel together, buses sometimes between cities. Uh, Philadelphia, New York, San Antonio, Houston, Portland, Seattle. We take a bus um, with the guys. Sit with, yes, I would. I'd sit with the with the coach when we traveled. Uh, commercial air. Uh, the rule in the NBA then was twelve. You had to take a flight with twelve first class seats, <laughs> and uh, the twelve uh, roster players would get the first class, and the coaches would sit and coach. Not named for them, but. Uh, so I would always sit on every flight with Phil Jackson or Johnny Bach or Tex Winter and would just be quizzing them about basketball. I would sit with Tex Winter. He, he would bring his triple post book that he wrote and he would go through the plays for me and what they were trying to do. 
And so I did have a unique access, but it also was about relationships too. Sure. And creating relationships, which you could do in any era. I did some social things with them because we're on the road together. Sometimes I remember we played golf myself, Phil Jackson, Tex and Johnny Bach went out and played golf in a foursome one time, you know, back in the Chicago area. And I went, Johnny was a pilot. He took me for a flight one time around, we'd be on the road. He said, hey, I'm gonna rent a plane. You know, when I take a ride around, you know, San Francisco or something. So I did, you know, and so you could develop relationships with people because of the intimacy of that era. But at the same time, you still can do it today, not to the level I did, but it, it, it you is can develop possible. relationships with people. And if you develop relationships with people and treat them, not as, not as, you know, because basically I've always found, unless they're, tremendously narcissistic most famous people want to be treated like normal people Mm -hmm. and uh, they want to be able to show their specialty but otherwise than that you know live a normal life and so um, you know that i was i was fortunate to be able to be at the right place at the right time with this unique group that happened to have this, this tremendous success built around Michael Jordan. Sure, Sam, but like I think you're selling, you're being extremely humble as well there because you didn't just build friendships. You, you know, you dug right into these characters and like Halberstam built this kind of uh, character piece study of all of these individual parts that went into making this great force that at the start of that book, that infamous book, nobody thought they were going to win the championship that year. It was just not on the cards. They've been hammered the last three years and they couldn't get around this Pistons team. But before we get to that, I do want to ask about now that we've established the culture in which this jewel arrives into this you know blue chip talent that arrives into chicago uh, and is picked up by george kohler just by chance as he is a, a limo driver hanging around the airport and the bulls haven't sent anybody to pick him up that you wind up on this day with mj at his townhouse uh, where he is famously ironing his own clothes and relating to you that the reason why he took home economics in high school was because he feared he may never find a wife. Now, that access that you got then versus the end of your Jordan Rules book, where he's saying, why do I have to answer your questions? Who are you? You're not my father. I don't have to answer anything you ask me. I have to live my life for me. When did you start to notice that change take place? Because by the sounds of things, 1984, 85, 86, he's the greatest guy to hang around with that you could ever hope to meet. Yeah, Jordan was just such a delightful figure to be around. And and when people ask me about the Last Dance documentary, I, I thought to me that's the thing that stood out the most. Uh, getting a glimpse, at least, of what we saw about him in the '80s when he first came to Chicago. Open, conversational, sort of carefree, fun, just a you know uh, an entertaining, comfortable person to b- spend time with. Mm. Hum- humble, but so incredibly competitive that you know the conceit came in playing you know not so much beyond that you know grew up you know stable family you know good background you know strong male figures with his father and dean smith you know his, his mother's influential as well parents both worked always kept them you know not kept them in control but mm. it kept them in a very stable environment so, yeah, and, and so I, I enjoyed for others the view of being able to see Michael relax that way. Yeah. Because I don't think during the championship years anyone ever really saw him that way. He was still, you know, not, not it was unpleasant, the depiction, it wasn't at all. You know, he's still mm. fun, joking, and all that sort of stuff. You know, but as the combination of the celebrity grew, he, he, I mean, every, everybody... Everybody wants to be noticed and applauded for what they do, no matter what they say. However humble you might be or whatever, you, 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 you do want to get appreciation for what you do, whether, you know, whether it's a, 
you know, an actor or director who might not even go to the award ceremony, but still wants to, mm. likes, likes getting the acknowledgement and the award. So, but as the celebrity grew, which Jordan liked, but also the sort of the controversies with partially because of the Jordan rules, which I, which I didn't think shouldn't have been as controversial as it was, but because of the depiction at the time and, you know, the way Jordan was marketed as this, you know, perfect uh, figure and uh, all, all the appropriate products, you know, so-called we call all American products. Uh, Chevrolet and apple pie and mom, <laughs> whatever. And so, you, you know, when I describe somebody who you know wasn't criminal or felonious in any way, but you know could be uh, mean spirited sometimes or harsh on teammates, well, ah, it couldn't be Michael Jordan. We know Michael. We saw him in the commercial. He's the nicest guy in the world. And so, but there were other with gambling came up, and and Jordan he felt betrayed some some. I've said this before, I don't think he ever read the Jordan rules, but I think what he didn't like about it and what, what he was hurt by was the depiction where people would pull out elements and said, well, he yelled at this guy or he hit that guy. And the image that it became is that, you know, he was a, sort of a, a terror there, which, which he knew he wasn't. And so he, we, had, we had had a good relationship. I wasn't really close friends with him, but we did things socially. I played golf with him and... Uh, dinners on the road, you know, in the 80s when you're with people in, in those environments and, you know, you just get pushed together. And, you know, I always found him interesting. You know, I, I enjoyed his competitive conversational thing. That's It was sort of a New York kind of thing where, you know, you either stand up for yourself or you get crushed. And so growing up in that environment, like I described before, you know, you've got you've got to be quick a little bit. You, you've got to you've got to respond verbally even more than physically, you right. know, to, and which is the nature of, you I know, heard that you kind say of this thing. Before, he wanted the last word in every <laughs> conversation. That seemed, that seemed really bizarre to me. Do you, is that, did you mean that yeah. literally? He wanted, he wanted to be the last person to speak when you were speaking to him. Yeah, yeah, he did, because I always viewed that as him winning, winning, you know, he was so competitive that it came down to conversation as well. And that, you know, he. I, I don't think he thought it out that way. He didn't articulate it in his mind that way. But I think that's just the nature as he was. You you would say something, and he would be able to top you. So the guy like that in the last shot. You know, you might hit a shot with four seconds left, like against Cle you know Cleveland in that famous game in '89, and he's got three seconds left. Well, he's going to get. He's going to finish it. He's going to. You know, he's going to hit one at the buzzer. So. It, it spilled over and I into found conversation. That, I found yeah. him that way in, con in conversation, you know, in conversation as well. So let me cut in here in the middle and tell you that there is more to this chat. At the end, we duck off and we have an even further discussion about his memorabilia. I mean, you would imagine a man like Sam Smith had access and was offered game-worn jerseys, shoes, uh, has uh, trinkets and mementos from his time in the game all those years I mean a treasure trove of worth millions I ask him about what is his favourite piece from what I assume is a vast vault of stuff that he will retire on later in life and the answer he gives me will surprise you that's all in the bonus section for our Patreon partners if you haven't partnered up with us please do it's the only way i can continue to make irishman abroad inside basketball this is an expansion series from our regular irishman abroad series so i need your help to keep going and if you sign up you get access to all of the bonus content including my question to sam smith about pizzagate where sam contends that it wasn't the pizza that poisoned Michael Jordan you'll need to hear that like that alone is worth the fiver a month but also you'll get access to hundreds of other episodes hundreds of episodes that are not available anywhere else come on over patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad it'll only take you two minutes to sign up as I said jigsaw.ie are our chosen charity partner this platform gives me the opportunity to big up or shout out one charity and I've chosen Jigsaw.ie, who are an incredible organization who are helping young people through this very difficult time and the difficult time that is early life. We all know how hard it was to be 
teenagers and young people. And there was very little support when I was coming up and basketball helped me in a major way work through some stuff. Well, Jigsaw are doing that for years now. Uh, hundreds and thousands of kids back in Ireland go to Jigsaw workshops set up in their communities using their skills team of trained experts for one-to-one and workshops with young people. If you can support them or if you need help yourself, head over to jigsaw.ie today. I get that, like, we're now, and I probably have been disabused of this notion as I've grown up with them. I mean, I was four years old when he went to the NBA and I bought in, right? Like a lot of people listening to this, I bought into, he's just the nicest, smiliest man and he he can fly. And then as I grew up and got older and probably after he retired, I came to understand that somebody that competitive isn't that much fun to be around all the time. Did you notice that thing that you're describing here wearing on people early doors or was it something that only started to wear on people once it was pointed out in things like the Jordan rules? Well, yes and no. I mean, part of part of the Jordan rules and part of the reason I've got so much cooperation from so many players and my relationships were good when the book came out was that so many players didn't feel that they had a way to go back at Jordan because he was so popular and was the community favorite that, you know, it benefited me. But I realized when I was writing the book, you know, without speaking it, you know, without discussing it with somebody, I would think to myself, why are they telling me this? And then I would then I would realize that they wanted that out because this this was a way of I wouldn't say maybe controlling is not the exact you know word and 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 I thought there was an element of that with some some of the things with Phil Jackson a bit of a confession yeah that Jordan's celebrity was growing so you know so spectacular like like you would describe there oh he's the perfect guy and he flew and all this. And this, you know, this tremendous marketing campaign, you know, combined with what is now becoming success on the court, you know, his head maybe is exploding. And I, and I thought, you know, Phil Jackson welcomed the book as a tool also, you mm. know, to, uh, in two ways. One, that, you know, it would, contr- you know, it would sort of bring Jordan down a level yeah. more toward the team group. Because Phil's thing always was trying to figure out last dance, title, whatever it was. How do I bond this group? How do I keep this group together? It's a lot harder thing than people think to get a group of disparate individuals, you know, to combine for six months like that or eight months when they have success in yeah. playoffs. And, and the book was a good know, way of co- doing that. Yeah, so coach uses whatever method he could. And I thought Phil used the book, you know, cleverly. One, you know, some of the things that were coming out that were viewed, quote, negative about Jordan. But then two, telling, you know, telling Jordan, hey, you know, the only ones you could trust is me and us, Mm. the team. You know, the media is out to get you. Sam Smith's out to get all these guys. You know, and so it was a way I thought of that Phil cleverly identified that and saw it as a way, well, I could help bring Jordan back in because now, you know, with the first championship and everything that was, you know, happening, skipping a trip to the White House, uh, the team goes to the White House, he does, he goes gambling. How am I going to get this guy as much as he wants to compete? How am I going to get him to play as a teammate, as another one of the guys? And so, you know, I thought I really never discussed that that way with Phil. But I I felt that that's, you know, one thing that because he, he, he has a last stance sort of uh, showed, you know, he used the, the differences with management as a bonding thing. Yeah, they want to get rid of. They want to get rid of me. They want to break up the team. They want to get rid of you guys. Well, let's show them. You know, let's mm. let's come together and here's another you know, reason. Win one more time, yeah. Right? And so, while I, I don't think some you know some management or ownership didn't like that, you know, because they were depicted as the bad guys. You know, Phil was saying, "Look, it's it's, it's worth it in the end because yeah. right, it'll work, and this is a way we can succeed." And so, 
that was another of the, you know, really thing I admired about Phil, the way he looked and was able to, you know, view, view the landscape and put the team in, in, in position to succeed no matter the circumstances. Sometimes it might have, you know, might, you know, even though we, we've always had a good relationship, and, but he said some awful things <laughs> the Jordan rules when it came out. He said, oh, that's not true. And years later, he did say to me, yeah, and I see him, you know, when I'm in L.A., I always have lunch with him still. Uh, last the end of the end of uh, the last season, we were actually playing. Whenever in L.A., I went out and saw him, had lunch with him, and I remember one time, you know, saying, "Oh well, yeah," because he said at the time, he says, "Well, I, I I didn't read that book, you know, I read 50 pages and it wasn't true and all, <laughs> you know, because that was part." I remember years later, he, he said to me one time in passing, he said, "Well, of course I read the book, yeah, I enjoyed the book," <laughs> but he said that's what I had to say at the time. Not that I had to say, that's what he felt was the best to say to bond the team to keep the team and I admired that about him you know well, uh, I, I could I could take the hit you know <laughs> was he lying maybe a little bit but that's okay I, I understood what his higher purpose was and it, it, it wasn't offensive to me because I understood what he was doing and that you know and, that, and that's why I enjoyed spending time with, uh, around him because he you know he had a, such a unique perspective on so many things and you 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 really did have uh, clearly, this isn't a hindsight being 2020 thing. You you had to have that then, right? Because, you know, you have this Chicago um, Times whipping up a frenzy about this. You're kind of taking bits out of it, running them as headlines deliberately to hopefully get you banned from the place. It all backfiring on them because the book is selling like hotcakes. And you're eventually advised by the Tribune to stay home at which point the ap reports that you've gone missing i mean that must have been among the most bizarre times of your life alongside actually approaching mj at his locker room at his locker and saying look if you've got a problem with this say it to me and him never speaking to you about it then or now right yeah he, it's yeah he and you know, I've seen him. I've seen him many. Well, obviously, came back, and you know, I covered him all his years in the '90s, and I was in Washington when he went there, and and uh, I always I tell George, you know, Kohler, the driver, I said, it, it doesn't get us anything, but we're the only people in the world who've seen Jordan's three first games and three last games because we were there in '84, '93 uh, when he came back, '95. I mean, his last game in '93, his '95 when he came back, '98 when he left. 01 in Washington when he played and 03 in Philadelphia, his last game there, you know, so we, we encompass that, uh, the entire thing, you know, yeah. that whole thing, the both of us, but yeah, it, it was uncomfortable. It, it, it was obviously it was somewhat uncomfortable for me. Yes. The Sun Times, the, you know, the competing papers saw it as an opportunity, uh, because they, they began peddling the narrative in which of course, if the bulls had lost, it probably would have been, more difficult for me, but uh, they peddled a narrative that, you know, because I exposed these internal workings and and these issues between the players and management and ownership that, 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 that the run was over after one, they'll never win again. Now, of course, the book came out and they were in the midst of a road trip and, and in the midst of winning 14 straight games. So so it limited that somewhat, too. But they were they were promoting this narrative on a regular basis. Uh, as the main competing paper in Chicago, I was working for the Chicago Tribune, and so they they and then they were yes lobbying for my departure, saying, "Well, he wrote a book; he didn't put it in the newspaper. They ought to fire him for that." But I, I, I kind of understood, you know, I, I this, having been a student of newspapers and loved newspapers, and having read about the you know the tabloid and yellow journalism. Wars in the United States, or even back, you know, in early American history, you know, Thomas Jefferson had uh, uh, funded a paper to criticize George Washington, you know, and John Adams before he became president. So this was nothing new yeah. in the history of American journalism. So I wouldn't equate myself with, with, with any of those people, but I've known about that sort of history. It was difficult with my family. My wife was not used to it. You know, it never been in a public situation, but I had been an investigative reporter, grew up in New York, 
you know, I did investigative reporting when I got into journalism, worked in Washington, D.C., as I mentioned. So I, I was accustomed somewhat, you know, to being in situations where it, it was adversarial mm. and, that I, and that I understood somehow that, you know, this too shall pass. Yes. You know, people will say things. And you've got to write it out. Know, and I, I had the advantage and that um, now I'm a big advocate for journalism. Despite people will say, well, you know, you can't believe, you, you know, what you read. Well, yes, you can believe what you read, because if you lie in journalism, you're, that's the end of your career. You get one chance. You don't get another chance. Mm. You know, and there are many episodes of that where journalists have uh, fabricated stories and they've never worked again. Mm. And they may not get it and they may not get everything right, but they're not making it up. And so what I had going for me is I knew it was true. I knew what I would written had, had occurred. I was there. I chronicled it. I put people's names on the record. And so even though there was this turmoil about it, you know, where famous people were going going on TV and condemning me. Roy Williams, I remember seeing on TV saying, you know, I was a liar and made all this up. You know, he was a coach at Kansas then. And he had been the assistant when Michael was in North Carolina. He's coaching North Carolina now, mm. obviously. Uh, Mike Ditka, who was this famous Chicago coach, coaches the Chicago Bears when they won the championship, great, you know, figure in Chicago, would be on TV saying, you know, I was a bum, and, <laughs> you know, all this sort of stuff, and it's disgusting, and don't believe it, and, and so there was this this cavalcade, <laughs> you know, and, and I remember watching a, a TV, they do, you know, the TV, local TV people do these crazy things where they're outside, like walking in the rain, you know, so you would know it's raining out and when they do their reports. And I, I remember, you know, so we're doing, somebody did a report on the book and kicked it down a, like a sewer. <laughs> and so it was all this madness going on, you know, and I was thinking, well, it's about sport. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and everyone's you know, named, as like, you say. There's no anonymous sources. Yeah, but but it, but it became so intense. Like you said, the, the newspaper said, "Well, you know, why don't why don't you just because because I'm getting all these uh, media calls and you know, there's, there's obviously long before for cell phones and things, and and are answering machines, and so they said, "Well, just stop answering your phone." <laughs> And so I did, you know, and, and uh, my family couldn't reach me, you know, and then a peak, you know, printed this little story saying author missing. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it was really sort of chaotic. And this was in the pre 24 seven Twitter, you know, era, even then. So we say, well, what would have been now? I mean, it, it might have been less than now in some sense, because there would have been the debate would have been taken off. Everybody mm. would have been debating each, with each other about how bad I am or how good I am, whatever, sure. whatever the case might be. But, you know, what, what uh, uh, yeah, I'm not saying what saved it, but the Bulls kept winning. I mean, what it, what it did, it enhanced the value of what I had done because they were successful. You know, I, mm. I've said a lot of times, you know, I could have done it about the, you know, the Detroit Pistons or the Indiana Pacers or something, and it wouldn't have been, you know, I'd, I happen to be in the writing about Michael Jordan and uh, and and a dynasty championship team that I was, as you say, embedded with, and also, but you, you, like you mentioned, I, I was always very inspired by Halberstam's work, and especially that it was non-traditional sports. That he wrote about sports, but he wrote about people, mm. and he described how people, and 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 you could relate then. To, to because you could see yourself behaving like this. Exactly. And it wasn't, you yeah. know, it, it, it was beyond the numbers or the events. It was how people dealt with these situations. And so that's what I tried to bring into it, to bring out how these people not only dealt with this tremendous star, but how they dealt with, you know, the basics of going through a season, but also success and failure and, sure. and the elements in personal life. And so... Those are the things I'm most proud of about, you know, d doing that project that I was able, I had an opportunity to explore people at a time when people would be interested in it because of Michael Jordan and the success the team had, and then drag them along, you know, to read the story of what's going on. Mm, in, like in the way Gary Shandling used to describe the Shandling show being about a bunch of people that loved each other, but... Hollywood kept getting in the way that this 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 book contains 
so many characters with so much in common and so much love for each other, but they're tasked with this massive, massive, stressful task. One of the people that I was amazed didn't get mentioned in The Last Dance, and I think it's it's nearly criminal in the light of where America is right now, is Craig Hodges. Now, maybe you could explain for our listeners who Craig, Craig Hodges was, and maybe like one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me was how he actually approached Michael Jordan at one point and asked, why don't you go into the shoe business on your own? Imagine the jobs you could create for our people. Yeah, you know, since I, I don't know, I, I haven't followed up on this, but I did hear that Jordan had asked uh, or told, I know they've denied it some, but told the producers that he did not want Hodges interviewed for that show. Wow. Now, like I said, I never followed up to find out, but I had heard that, that there was some, you know, that he didn't want his kids interviewed, and I did hear, hear and they weren't. And, uh, and he didn't want his first wife, uh, Juanita, interviewed, and she wasn't. And uh, I had heard Hodges was on that news list. Why? Uh, I don't know. I, I, like, first of all, I, like I said, I can't say it's 100% true because I never followed mm. up. I'd heard that. You know, and Craig, you know, and, I, and we differed about this. I, I, I have a good relationship with Craig and still talk with him, you know, occasionally. He's back in the Chicago area. You know, Craig felt he was blackballed from the NBA because mm. of his stands he went to when, when the team went to the white house in 92 michael michael agreed to go by that time because uh, his gambling had been found out so um you know we went and craig was wearing this you know african dashiki outfit and he felt he said um that he felt that and, and he didn't get that was his last the end of his contract with the bulls they didn't pick it up after the 91 92 season and despite uh, him being he, a devastating three-point shooter right right he, he he was and in fact i helped craig get in even though that season he was the defending champion in the three-point contest and even though he's out of the league i had uh, lobbied the league on his behalf wrote many columns talked to the commissioner they had created a precedent some years before they had allowed a pl- the top three-point shooter from Europe, a guy named Kersenitis, I think it was, Remus Kersenitis. Anyway, they allowed him in. So I made the point, well, you know, you didn't have to be in the NBA to be in the contest. And so they agreed, and Craig got to be in that last contest. And he felt but, – but he back then, I, I didn't think he was blackballed per se because of his beliefs. I think it was it was more – that he just wasn't a good enough rotation player. He was a great shooter, but that was an era where the three-point... Now, if it was this era, it would have been different. Mm. But that era, the three-point shot wasn't a big weapon of teams. They were still throwing the ball inside to centers. You know, it's still a center-dominated NBA. Patrick Ewing, Shaq, a lot of the great centers still playing. And, and other than the Bulls, you know, who playing around Jordan, everybody else was playing around big guys and and the bulls had made the decision you know because they supported craig they had no problem with him wearing the shiki and all that sort of stuff they just felt defensively you know his legs he was a 32 or 33 year old guard and that was sort of the outer limit for a guard and back in back in that era that he couldn't defend the position anymore and i i i felt that was really more you know more the issue that you know, his, his shooting, his offensive play wasn't going to, he wasn't going to be able to stay on the court enough because of his lack of defensive ability at the time. You know, but, you know, we had an honest difference. Craig thinks it was because of his social stand. And he did have some issues back in the late 80s when he was in Milwaukee, you know, Wisconsin, or state of Wisconsin. It can be a conser- very conservative place, you know, Craig Muslim. And even back then, you know, before the 9-11 stuff and all, the real negativity toward Muslims emerged in the United States. You know, he had gone to some rallies of this Reverend uh, Farrakhan, who was, you know, still gives speeches to these days, very, you know, uh, anti-Semitic and, and makes a lot of hateful speeches. But, you know, to me, it's still speech. <laughs> it's it's sure. okay. You know, but Craig, Craig was, it wasn't so much he endorsed that, which he didn't. You know, he, he just, his mind was open to, you know, I, I admired Craig in, 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 in a lot of respects. 
his mind was open, you know, to a lot of, you know, different, you know, different theories and different thinking. And, you know, growing up in the family he did in Chicago, you know, they were very community oriented. They did a lot of, you know, charitable work. They did a lot of work with the people in poor neighborhoods. And, you know, he grew up in, in that environment uh, in supporting, you know, people who have less and supporting people who are discriminated against. And he played for Tex Winter when Tex coached at Long Beach State. So he, he knew the triangle. He was very close with Tex. And um, you, that was part of the reason, you, you know, the Bull Tex had lobbied for him. And that was part of the reason he came to the Bulls. I think they traded Ed Neely to, I think he was in Phoenix at the time. And, it, it, you know, it was, it was sort of an interesting dichotomy because while Craig, you know, Craig was, you know, very much, uh, proponent of now what's outside social issues. And that's, that, that's what I, I felt badly about this. I, I talked about it, and, you know, because I, I, had, I had used this quote in this last word quote from Jordan, which was a joking thing about the Republicans buy sneakers too. And I was having a, I was talking to him about a Senate race. Jesse Helms was the senator from North Carolina, his state racist kind of guy, mm. segregationist and, and, uh, the mayor of Charlotte, Harvey Gantt, was running against him, and I was having, you know, having politics and hobby as a hobby, having worked in politics and worked in Washington, and spent a brief time as a, a press secretary for a U.S. senator. I had interest in, you know, that, and then started sort of badgering Jordan about it one day because back then, before games, you know, in the '80s, Jordan was as accessible and open as anyone in the NBA. He'd sit for literally hours. Just, just shooting the shit anything. with you. Love, love talking to me. Not me. Any, me Anyone who'd listen. Wow. Love talking to the media. Love, love having debates, conversation, you know, with, with teammates across the locker room and would be there for hours because he, he would arrive early. He lived in the north suburbs. Our, the arena was downtown. And so, you know, make sure he wouldn't be caught in traffic. And uh, so I would bring up any sort of topics with him. And so one, I just happened to bring that up. Nobody else is talking about him with that kind of stuff. Not because I knew, you know, but just because it was an interest of mine. Mm. But back then in the NBA, political stands were much frowned upon. Yeah. Because in the NBA in the 80s was, you know, was coming out of an era. You know, there wasn't TV contracts. TV was very down on the NBA because of, you know, there was uh, intimations of drug use, which weren't any bigger than in society in general, which we later found out about Wall Street and everything in the financial area. But it gets promoted more because, you know, Wall Street doesn't get covered every day like box scores and games. And so there were players, you know, gotten in drug rehab. And, of course, it was a black league, primarily majority black league in a in segregation country as we see you know still to this day and so the players in the, in the league kind of came to an agreement about the salary cap we're going to put a ceiling on salaries because we're going to lose you know 70 jobs and four five or six teams if we don't they're going to go bankrupt and so part of the sort of unspoken deal was we're not going to talk openly about politics or right. things that might alienate our sponsors and our fan base or whatever, let's keep it hey, political. basketball, let's yeah. keep it as sports. And, and that's where Jordan was about that. You know, he wasn't making a political statement. And even Craig, you know, who, who worked a lot, you know, on social issues, didn't talk about it openly. But I remember, you know, Jordan was having, after his first Nike contract expired, he was having some issues with Nike. And, and I remember talking to him about it and he he, he, well, I, I think those guys are trying to cheat me or something. Obviously, all, all that, you know, worked out. Mm. And, and I remember, you know, Craig's, Craig going to him and saying, you know, why, why don't you, you know, become, you know, why don't you become the distributor of, of the sneakers and, you know, do it with, the, you know, minority companies and all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't so much Jordan you know, was against that is that he just wasn't a business guy. He just didn't want to deal with that mm, stuff. Hassle. You know, as you saw in the last dance, it was true. You know, his mother made him go out to Nike. He didn't even want to do that in the mm. first place. He, he just really wanted to play ball. And okay, now he's making money in the late eighties, you know, with Nike and, you know, commercials and Spike Lee and all, but, but he still doesn't want to become an entrepreneur. Now he did eventually become successful, but back then he still, 
you know, he, he was like with Craig, it's not so much, you know, I don't care about people. It, it just, I want to play ball. You know, I, I can't, I can't have time to, yeah, to figure be focused that on out. This. And, but, but the other part is Craig never made issues about it, you know, mm. back then, because he also understood, you know, that it was important to the league not to, you know, not to be making political statements. So even though he would have liked to, He's, you know, like the other players, he felt in the best interest of my fellow players, let's not politicize any of these issues. Well, let me uh, ask you then, final thing on this, Sam. That line, though, that Republicans also buy sneakers, you know, he, he maintained it was said in jest. And it's become maybe the only thing he's ever said that's haunted him. Was it said in jest? Like, I think that sometimes we're afraid particularly nowadays, and I'm saying this as a comic myself, that we're so aware of the implication of even making the joke. But, but you know locker room. I know that locker room talk, again, has become a dirty word as well because of Trump. But, like, this potentially could have been just the kind of shit that gets said, <laughs> you know, in a kind of a bantery and not necessarily the greatest, most uh, inspirational moment for young people ever to be heard, but said in the quiet confidence that this is an inner sanctum and this goes nowhere else. I make this joke because I am comfortable in our unwritten agreement of privacy here. No, not at all. Uh, that would be a misread on it. It was said in jest to me, it was the essence of Jordan that he he was so quick verbally that, you know, he could turn just like he was on the court, that he could respond to situations so quick. You know, he's not, you know, he's not particularly well read or any brilliant guy or any. He's not that. But he's so quick in conversation that he's so adept at getting the last word. No, he wasn't worried about it. Being, being a private conversation because it, 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 it wasn't a political statement. He, he, he didn't have, he, he wasn't political. He didn't, you know, he thought it was a good joke. Actually, mm. you know, what you reference is true. And, and, and I, I've gotten caught up in that sometimes because I, I make jokes too. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people are way too sensitive now. People, you know, it's, it's, it, it baffles me that, People attack comedians because of making jokes. It's just a joke. You know, we all grew up with six and stones, you know, mm. but words will never, you know, break my bones, but words will never harm me. That's right. You know, get over yourself. You know, why is everybody so upset, and especially on college campuses? I don't get this. College campuses have become the wor some of the worst places, the worst, some of the worst places to be, which shouldn't be, are college campuses and comedy clubs. Mm. Because people, you know, first of all, on college campuses, you should be open to everything. Who cares if somebody comes and talking Nazism? Sure, we're testing out ideas. I hear you. Exactly. You know, there's the old line about, you, you know, if you're not a socialist when you're 20, you're nuts. And, and, and if you are <laughs> when you're 50, you're nuts. You know, so that, that's what college is about. But you know, they seem to get the most offended by you know, college kids, by hearing things that, that they disagree with. And then the same with comics. You know, you go, why would people go to listen to somebody tell jokes if, they feel, if they're worried about being offended by what they say? Mm. You know, that, that's part of comedy. Lenny Bruce and our, all our great traditions in comedy, you know, in, in the United States. And so, you know, to, to condemn Jordan for that line, I thought was really unfair and inappropriate. And it was the one thing that... I didn't feel badly about anything I ever wrote about Jordan. That was the one thing because it was taken selfishly for people's, their own selfish purposes. I saw the New York Times did this many times, wrote stories and, you know, horrified. Oh, how dare Michael Jordan take this position? Because that was the position they wanted to take. Mm. And so I thought Jordan was used in a lot of occasions when we were just talking and he was making it. It was more than making a joke. He, he was wanting to shut me up. Yeah, he was. He was. <laughs> I was basically blathering on about politics and Harvey Gann and a Senate race. And he was saying, you know what? I'm, I don't want to talk about that. I'm done talking about that part of it is like, you know, hey, we were all 
And we all kind of agreed not to talk about politics, <clears throat> not to make, you know, controversial statements. And, and so what way, if you're Michael Jordan, you know, to get me to shut up, to top me with a great closing line? No, nah, it, it, it wasn't the intimacy of the locker room. Yeah. It was Michael it was being putting Michael, a pin in it. Yeah. getting the last word and getting you to stop talking. And it succeeded because <laughs> it was so good. It was so clever that I just was speechless. Well, Sam Smith, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this sit down conversation with you. Uh, and hopefully our paths cross at some point in Chicago in the future. Yeah, very good to talk to you. Nobody really usually wants to talk to me this long. So uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's unusual too as well. But uh, anyway, thanks for your interest. Thanks for all your good questions. Appreciate it, man. T take care of yourself. Stay safe and uh, all the best. All right. Take care. There you have it, Sam Smith. And as I said, there's more, including my questions about Pizzagate, where he reveals what actually poisoned Michael Jordan. My question about his favorite trinket of memorabilia from his time, his best five. I've read that his top five players, uh, that his, his ultimate starting five would be Dwight Howard, I know, Tim Duncan, Kobe, LeBron and Derek Rose. Uh, I mean, that... That defies logic. So I had to get to him about that. We get into that in the bonus content and he explains exactly how that five might have entered the public sphere as uh, his preferred starting five. And then towards the end, he kind of explains to me maybe the most significant insight that he's drawn from being in the game at this height. This is the end of season one of Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball. I am busy preparing season two. You are not going to believe what we've got lined up for you for season two, but I can't keep doing it without your support. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Enjoy the bonus content. Enjoy the extra episodes, including our live monthly comedy show, the Irishman Abroad Comedy Club, which went out. Uh, just last Friday there's another one on July 14th that you'll be invited to and you can watch from the comfort of your own home I really need your help to do this and continue making this my massive thanks to everyone who has supported the show until now who've gotten in touch who've tweeted me at Jarleth on Twitter and to John Marr for his extra help in researching this John Marr has come on board as a researcher for the show and has done Trojan work in the last two weeks so shouts to John Marr for his help with the Sam Smith interview shouts to the 42 who introduced me to Sam Smith there's no way I would have got this interview were it not for the 42 .ie. So head over there for all your sporting needs back home in Ireland and beyond. Thanks to uh, Jigsaw uh, for letting me be their chosen charity partner or spokesman. To Sam Smith, of course, to Brian Connolly for his production and Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. I will have news of season two very soon. Make sure you are subscribed to get it first. Thanks everybody for being here and supporting this first season of Inside Basketball. Can't wait to show you what's coming in season two.